production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland, where we are devoted to conversations of consequence that help democracy thrive. It's Friday, February 10th, and I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club. Today's forum is the Nathu Agarwal and Roy Blackburn Forum, and part of our Diversity Thought Leadership Series, which since 2005 has highlighted the best and most innovative work happening in BIPOC communities. And today, I'm deeply honored to introduce our speaker, who leads the top national nonprofit organization representing Native American students and professionals in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics, or you may know it simply as STEM. Sarah Echohawk is a citizen of the Pawnee Nation of Oklahoma and has led the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, or ACES, as Chief Executive Officer since 2013. Prior to joining ACES, she served as the Executive Vice President of the First Nations Development Institute, a national organization with a focus on economic development for indigenous people. And prior to that, she spent several years working for the American Indian College Fund, raising support for tribal colleges and universities. Sarah has spent her life advocating on behalf of Native people, who often are left out of many important conversations in this country. But we are going to change that today. Native Americans are these lands' first scientists, and indigenous teachings continue to fuel innovative solutions to modern-day issues, from designing and building renewable energy infrastructure to developing hybrid electric commercial aircraft. Native Americans today have left lasting marks on science and technology for the benefit of all. And we are still breaking barriers. Just last October, NASA astronaut Nicole Mann became the first Native American woman to go into space. Her historic flight on NASA's SpaceX Crew-5 mission has reignited a conversation about Native women's role in STEM and the barriers they still face with access to STEM careers. Founded in 1977, ACES aims to reverse this trend. Now in its 45th year, ACES supports 230 pre-college schools and 196 college and university chapters in the U.S. and Canada. To date, ACES awarded over 13 million in academic scholarships and counting. And I personally know dozens of Native family and friends who can thank ACES for making sure they can achieve their dreams. I am thrilled that we have the opportunity to hear from Sarah and learn more about how we can harness the power of Native American contributions to scientific advancement. If you have a question for our speaker, you can text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794. And you can also tweet your question at the City Club and City Club staff will try to work it into the second half of the program. Members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming Sarah Echohawk. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so thrilled. Thank you, Cynthia. Absolutely. Um, I guess we should start off really quick um, and kind of give a you know rundown of what ACES is, what what your mission is, what do you do? Sure. 
And, and just let me, I once again want to say thank you and Nawa, which is hello in the uh, Pawnee language. So as, as Cynthia mentioned, I'm a citizen of the Pawnee Nation. So again, thank you for having me. So important uh, to be having these conversations. So ACES, um, as, Cynthia, as Cynthia mentioned, was established in uh, 1977 and it was uh, actually created by three engineers and one geologist, and the geologist was the one woman as well. Um, <laughs> interestingly enough. Uh, so fast forward, uh, well at that time, really it was just about having a place where they could come together because when they would go to different conferences and places where there were other, um, where their colleagues would go, that they would feel very singled out and isolated. So they really wanted to create an organization to change that. And that was really why they created ACES in the first place. Um, so then you fast forward 45 years later, and where is ACES today? Uh, it has expanded into all of the STEM fields. So we retain our name, right, science and engineering. But as Cynthia mentioned, it's science, technology, engineering, math. And beyond that, um, we even expand on that definition because we also include traditional ecological knowledge and other traditional practices, and also look at health and medical, which often is kind of taken out of STEM. So we're much more broad than that. And part of that is because there is such a need for an organization like ACES in Indian country. We don't have these other organizations that other communities have that have all of these different niches. And so ACES really has become kind of the focal point for so many uh, native students uh, coming up uh, through their education as a place that they can go and be supported and meet other Native people in professions. So Cynthia and I were talking, I am not a STEM uh, person, I, and neither is Cynthia, but we both were in ACES chapters when we were in college because that was the place that we could belong. That's where you could find the other Natives. Right, exactly, that's <laughs> so what I was like, that's where they are, so that's where I'll be. Um, so today, um, we really focus on three different areas. First is student success. So that is exactly what it sounds like. How do we make Native students successful in STEM? And we start in pre-kindergarten all the way through, uh, you could even say through graduate school, postdoc, right? So the whole um, spectrum of that. Uh, in the PK through, PK through 12 space, a lot of that is about um, culturally informed curriculum. So ensuring that the curriculum that students are receiving is appropriate and relevant to them because that will engage them and get them interested. And also uh, educating families and communities about the importance of STEM. and. As Cynthia said, how we are, we say, the first scientists, right? So this is part of our, um, of our culture and part of who we are. So uh, when you get into college, it's more about helping students, one, be supported in college, but giving that scholar, uh, that financial support, offering them internship opportunities. They can join the chapters that Cynthia mentioned. Again, just to feel supported and help guide them along that. And during that, we also then encourage leadership development and have a lot of programs that focus on helping them become um, confident and able to go out into the, into the workforce and feel good about that. Uh, we also do uh, work, uh, sorry, career support. So once they cross into that career path, right, and they're working uh, in a STEM field, we continue to support them. Because once again, as we are, what, just 3% of the population here, often they will find themselves as being one of the only native people, perhaps in their work group um, or where they're working. And so how can we continue to support them through their careers so that they don't feel isolated and they get that kind of support and belonging that they need to have to be successful. So that's the career support. And then finally is this newer area that really we've been doing, I think ACES has been doing all along, but we're really, 
um, putting a focus on it as we move forward with our new strategic plan, and that is um, how to, basically, how do we create welcoming and supportive environments both in academic institutions and in corporations, federal agencies, other workplaces, right? Because it's not enough just to get the job and then go into the job, but then how do they stay in the job, and not only that, how do they succeed? And if the, the environment that they go into, and this is the same for colleges and universities, if the environment that they go into is not supportive of who they are as indigenous people, they are not gonna succeed, and they're probably going to leave or drop out. And so we have, <laughs> we have the, uh, we're fortunate that we have kind of an entrance into both universities and colleges as well as employers because they come to ACES because they're interested in recruiting our students and our professionals. So I was talking with um, Cynthia and with a good friend I just met, Kirsten, um, about this, that when I first came to ACES, it was really like trying to convince universities and colleges and convince employers that Yes, you should hire indigenous peoples. Yes, they will add something. Yes, they will bring something. Please consider us, please, please. And often the response was, well, your numbers are too small. Um, there's no return on investment. You really don't count. That's what, that's, and I still hear that, not as much. You know, and my argument was, well, if you're gonna be touting diversity as a value of your corporation, your agency, your university, then you cannot leave out the first Americans. Mm -hmm. You just, you can't do that. Include that I in the Bible. Right, exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So that's the argument, you know, that we, that, you know, that I try to convince them that the ROI is beyond just the initial financial return, right? And we talk, and we'll talk more about diversity. Yeah. So I don't want to go too much further, but I will say, so what we're trying to do now is to help employers and academic institutions understand how to create those environments where indigenous peoples can be successful once they come into that environment so that they will stay and then continue um, to you know, persevere and be, get their education and or continue to move through uh, whatever their career field is. Yeah. So that's really where we're at and, and really quickly too, before we dive in a little mm -hmm. deeper, maybe like what are some of the type of um, careers that we're seeing with ACES um, mm -hmm. professionals and students that they're interested in? It's, it's beyond just them, like you said, it's computer science, IT. I mean, what are some of the, the, the degrees and, and careers we're seeing through yeah, ACES. It, it, it spans all of the STEM fields and beyond. So I think people see science and engineering and assume that that's what we're doing, but we have a lot of um, students that are interested in environmental science, right? Because of, again, with the tie to the land and, the, um, and our culture, um, the environment is very important to us. So we see a lot of um, students that are interested in environmental science or natural resources, right? We see a lot of hydrology, we see ag science. I mean, it really runs the gamut. And then of course, we also have the social science majors and others who come to ACES as well, because it is a community and a place where they can feel welcome. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I've been to a number of ACES conferences. I know a lot of folks that are in the network, and it's just really inspiring, right, to see kind yes. of the work that's being done. And maybe if you could share, like, one story or two that is that you see through ACES of, like, a success story or someone who's doing this really cool work yeah. in, in STEM. I know. There's so many, right? Yeah. Uh, I, so it's hard to narrow it down. Um, but a good example, especially since we're talking about gender as well, um, one person that comes to mind is Crystal Tully Cordova. Um, who is Dene or Navajo, um, and she came up through ACES along with her two sisters um, through middle school and like science fair, uh, went through high school and college and ACES really supported her along that journey and then into her doctorate and she's now the principal hydrologist for her, tri for her tribe, for her tribal nation. And the Navajo Nation is the largest 
nation, native nation in the United States in terms of land mass and second in terms of population. But she has really taken that uh, to heart and is making change in her own community, right? Mm -hmm. And that's really what it's about. So she's one example that I always, that yeah. I think of. Yeah. Yeah, there's just amazing work. I know mm -hmm. um, not a woman, Aaron Yazi, a, a friend of mine, um, he works at JPL. He has, he has parts on Mars yes. right now. Mars <laughs> he, he has things that yes. he's designed yes. on Mars right yes. now. Um, so we're, we're everywhere. Uh, absolutely love that. <laughs> uh, Speaking of, of astronauts in, in space, uh, we just had, as I mentioned in the introduction, a really mm. groundbreaking moment for Native women. Um, astronaut Nicole Mann uh, is the first Native American to go in, Native American woman to go into space. Mm -hmm. um, so it was such a, a powerful moment. I remember putting that on live stream. And I think I, I, I slacked my entire staff, like, you need to turn this on. This is, this is such a big moment for us. Um, I mean, what did that mean for ACES, kind of seeing that happen? Mm -hmm. Well, I think it's it's exactly it's like the epitome of what we are trying to achieve, right? Where we can where we can look at our students today, our young kids today, and say this is what you this is what is possible, and what you can become. And it's very clear, right? You actually see an example, and that's you know that has been the challenge uh, historically is that we haven't had enough of our people in those roles so that they could be role models. So it really to us, you know, we were excited to and we're. We're trying to get her to the conference, the ACES <laughs> conference uh, in October. But to me, it's just a, it's just an example of exactly what ACES is trying yeah. to do. And right? we're seeing a lot mm -hmm. of movement with Native women too across the country, um, in ways that I feel obviously long or overdue. Mm -hmm. um, we have Deb Holland is now the Secretary of Interior mm -hmm. of the United States, yes. right? First uh, Native woman in that role. We have um, uh, Sharice Davids, right, in, in Kansas. We have Mary Peltola, who just um, won election in Alaska. I feel like we're making solid grounds in mm -hmm. a lot of areas, but not necessarily in STEM. Mm -hmm. Like, what are some of the challenges you're seeing with Native women and why we're not kind of, why we're not seeing those gains in like, you know, alongside of and at pace with some of these other ones right. in STEM fields. Yeah. No, and, and I think that's true, you know, for women in general as well as Native, especially for Indigenous women and, bi or I should say, BIPOC women. Um, you know, we're actually looking at this, and I know we're going to talk a little bit about the rematriation mm -hmm. project. Yes. But, um, you know, so there's, i got to back up a little bit and say there has been a trend about men and boys of color falling behind, right, in education and that women and, and girls of color are outpacing in terms of college education. Um, that is true, but it is not true in computer science and engineering. So in computer science and engineering, we still see roughly 20% of the majors being women. And if you think about indigenous women, that number is even smaller. And so why is that happening when it's not happening, as you said, in other fields, right? You see that women are making greater strides. And there's a number of reasons um, for that. Some of it has to do with, um, as women, as girls are coming up through school, um, if you're not engaging them by the time they're in middle school, or even, I should say, right before they get into middle school, right, when all of the changes start to happen, if they're not engaged in the STEM interest at that point, chances are you're going to have very little success getting them. So we need to be getting them sooner. And also those environments that they're going into, as I mentioned, kind of like how do we create these welcoming environments? Well, for girls, often they are just not encouraged, right, or not supported to, to pursue that. It's seen as more masculine. And as they go through their academic journey, that remains true. And then when you do actually get into college, and you are going to be a computer science or an engineering major, say, then you're going to be one of the few women. I went out to um, Southwestern Indy Polytechnic Institute, Indian Polytechnic Institute, SIPI. <laughs> it's a tribal college. Um, 
And I, uh, I think Joe was there that day. <laughs> but I, was, uh, I actually got to attend an engineering class that was there and it was interesting. There was, I think there was one or two women in the class of like 20. So again, you know, just they're not encouraged. They don't feel like they belong there because it's not something that they get supported uh, while they're in school. And then often, and as we're gonna talk about this study, you'll find that when you talk to women, indigenous women about what their experience has been, it has been that they are often isolated and that they're not getting the kind of support or mentoring that their male counterparts get. And I think that's something too worth noting, just mm -hmm. backtracking a little bit, um, the role of Native women in our tribes yes. and in our societies and in our communities, maybe touch on what that means yeah, culturally. Right, and that's like where we're talking about the rematriation, project rematriation, meaning um, many of our um, tribal nations are matrilineal in terms of the way that we recognize, uh, recognize descendancy and also in the way um, in terms of who holds the power and the authority in our nations. And women really historically held those roles. And it was just through the process of colonization that those roles were flipped. And so, and if we wanna get into a really you know, long conversation, we could talk about, you know, to me and for me and looking at that information, you look at it, that's one of the reasons that our, some of our communities continue to suffer because they have completely transformed our traditional way of life, our traditional governments, right? And our mm -hmm. traditional roles. And mm -hmm. so, yes, it's empowering to see Native women now stepping forward again and being supported to reassert that authority and that power um, and become leaders again in our communities. And one of the ways that we're hoping they will do that, as we've seen, is through STEM. Absolutely. Yeah. And um, so recognizing that there's kind of this you know, deficit of, of Native women going into STEM fields, and we see this with women in general, right. um, but it's definitely uh, more pronounced for Native women. Um, you mentioned the Rematriation Project, yes. amazing title, love it. Um, it's the Indigenous Women in STEM Leadership Project. And this was, uh, there was a period of time leading up to like mm -hmm. the announcement of the, the launch of this initiative, which actually right. just launched, they just made that announcement on Monday, um, earlier this week. So this is very fresh news that you, you know, breaking news that you're all getting today. Um, and tell me a little bit about the, the process going into mm -hmm. the, the launch of this initiative. Right. Well, and you see that there are other rematriation projects around the country. And so we had talked about this at ACES, just kind of along the dialogue we were having, like how do we get more women in STEM and why aren't they there? And you know, thinking, well, we really do need to be looking back to those traditional roles and kind of reconnecting with that. So that's where the title came from. But we approached the, um, it's funded by the Henry Luce Foundation. We approached them for a planning grant and we really wanted to go out and have conversations with women who were in STEM, indigenous women who were in STEM and talk to them about you know, where, where have the challenges been? Where are your, you know, when have you been successful and why? And when have you been challenged and why? And start gathering that information um, to start, to try to understand what it is that we need to be supporting um, women going forward if they're gonna be in STEM. And so that planning grant, yes, ended and now we're actually launching the program, which will then be a cohort of indigenous women in STEM going through, um, it's like there'll be trainings and opportunities to present research and travel and support one another. We have a similar program that we've done 
um, with the National Science Foundation, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't gender specific. And so we, along learning what we've learned from that program, what the input was from the women and going forward, then we've developed this program. And so yes, it's launching and we're very excited. That's, uh, that's amazing and incredible. And I'm just really grateful to ACES yes. for providing that opportunity for yes. Native women to have that, that support that yes. I think that we were talking is so desperately needed. Um, you know, how do you think that a program like this might change the game? Right. Um, like an initiative like this, if, if you could wave a magic wand, <laughs> what do you think would, would change? Well, if I, yeah, if I could wave a magic wand, it would be that we would see, you know, women, uh, indigenous women, at least at parity in these STEM fields, right? In all of the STEM fields. Um, well, it's going to take a while to get there, but we're very hopeful that we can get there. And, you know, when you look at there are so many phenomenal women in STEM, indigenous women. We talked to over 150 different women throughout this process to put this program together. And I think you know, their dream is just to have the same opportunities um, and the ability to develop their careers and their leadership as anybody else, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's what we hope for. Absolutely. Um, one of the things that I noticed kind of skimming through some of the findings is just the sheer visibility Yes. of our community in STEM fields. Largely, I think this is like a nationwide problem. I think it's a global problem for indigenous people. Yes. Um, but the fact that we're often left out of data. Um, just a quick anecdote. I remember writing a, a blog for Center for Community Solutions. And I was told to write about Native American mental health issues in Cuyahoga County. And I said, I cannot write this blog because I don't have data yeah. of mental health issues for Native Americans in Cuyahoga County. Right. And that ended up being the topic of the blog. Mm -hmm. um, for ACES, I know that this is one of the, the leading issues that you're dealing with right now is mm -hmm. just the invisibility of the data. And as, right. you know, for a STEM organization, it's all about data. Mm -hmm. I mean, how has it impacted ACES and um, those who are working with natives in the STEM field? Yeah, it's, it's definitely an ongoing challenge. Like you said, it's, you know, from a macro perspective, uh, invisibility is our greatest challenge as indigenous peoples. Often we're just left out of the conversation. Um, when there are conversations about diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. A lot of times, if I'm lucky enough to get an invitation, I will be the only Native person there. And a lot of times, I'll stumble upon something and see that there is no Native representation and have to kind of stand up and say, where are the, you know, where are the Native people? So it's definitely something that happens. We're usually relegated to the past. A lot of people mm -hmm. think of us in the past, not as contemporary people. For ACEs, where it's challenged, yes, with the data. And so, again, you can't, you can't find it. If you can find it, it's not usually data that we had any role in um, creating um, in creating that, right? Or any kind of conversation about mm -hmm. what the data, you know, what are we trying to look at and why and who's collecting that data? Like again, usually that is not, it's not us, right? Yeah. Um, so when we're trying to do our work, this I run into this a lot because if I'm trying to get funding to support ACEs, they're like, okay, well, let's see the data. I'm like, well, there isn't any, mm. right? Yeah. But that's not our fault. Right? <laughs> so, so ACES has, when I came to ACES almost a decade ago, we did establish um, a research um, department. It was one person for a very long time. It's now growing. And so we are starting now to engage with like the national academies and other organizations to begin collecting data on specifically on indigenous people in STEM and women in STEM. So something that you know, will be coming out of like this project and many of the other projects that come out is we are, we are collecting that data and starting to create that. But we also try to have those conversations with the National Science Foundation, National Academies about the importance of data and how we can be involved and help them create that because it just basically, we've just been erased. Right. Right. We're in the, if, if we're mentioned at all, we're in the other category and who wants to be an other? 
right? Yeah, so. and I mean, on the, the, the topic of data and grants, I know that for Native people, um, I think we were, it's a half, one, half of 1%. One half of 1%. One half of 1%. <laughs> yeah. Of, of all philanthropic philanthropic funding in mm -hmm. the country uh, goes to indigenous-led organizations. So yes. that means 99.6% of all philanthropic funding mm -hmm. uh, goes to non-native-led orgs. That's correct. Um, so, I mean, even if you were gonna say, well, you're 3% of the population, okay, well, then you're missing almost a little over two and a half percent. We're yeah. still missing, right? I mean, <laughs> Cleveland is such a, a rich, you know, has a rich history, um, and today is one of the largest, uh, has one of the, s several of the largest philanthropic organizations nationally. I know that you receive a lot of grants and sponsorships. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, how can we start convincing uh, these national organizations, these philanthropic organizations, charitable giving, to start investing in Native women in STEM? Right. I, I, I wish I had the answer. No, yeah. but I have some <laughs> thoughts on that. So. Um, you know, one of, one of the things that has historically happened to indigenous peoples and part of this erasure is that, and if we're talking about in philanthropy, that money is given to non-indigenous led and non-indigenous involved organizations and institutions and universities, which I, I adore universities, but often given to those who aren't indigenous led and essentially are studying us, right? Mm -hmm. And basically extracting from our communities. So that money is going to a non-indigenous institution to extract things from our communities. That's been devastating to our communities, right? It's just the same kind of colonial um, process that, right, that we have been going through all of these years. And so, yes, some of our organizations are smaller and they're in development, but you know, we know we have the solutions to our problems. We just don't have the resources. Mm -hmm. And so if people would invest in us, we can solve our problems. We just need those resources and we need to be trusted to do that. Because even when I, often when funding comes in and I wrote a uh, article um, that I'll have, to, I'll have to share with you about capacity building and when funders give you money for capacity building, which is few and far between anyway, but that really when they give it to indigenous organizations, they have a very specific list of like, this is what capacity building means from their point, their viewpoint and what you need to do. And again, so it's very prescriptive. Mm -hmm. So really what, what we ask is that you think about funding the kind of work that you find interesting, right? If you're a funder, it's like, oh, I see ACEs for one example, right? And I really like what they're doing. I wanna support them. We'll have a conversation understand what they're trying to do and support that organization and let you know have a have a partnership a true partnership because you're going to learn something out of that too because when it comes in and it's very prescriptive yeah we'll we'll jump through the hoops right to get the funding <laughs> but it's really not going to have the impact and so this happens a lot it's like we get funding because we need just so desperately need it and we will agree to almost anything to get the funding because we want to keep our doors open and then we try to implement this program that is completely foreign and then it doesn't succeed and then we get blamed for the failure. Yeah. Right? And yeah. it's supporting it in, you know, taking it back to, to Native women. I, I was always told growing up, you, you invest in Native women, you invest in tribal communities. That's right. Like full stop. Yep. You want to discuss a little bit about that for about, ACES? Yeah. Well, I think we were just saying that. Um, just like we were saying that women are the leadership in our communities and even you know through the process of colonialism you still see that women are the ones that are the ones that are generally holding the communities together um, and it's it's almost like a quiet leadership almost that you see and that's not often acknowledged by outside 
are folks that are external. And interesting enough, ACES is a predominantly female-led organization as well, I believe, out of our yeah. 45 staff, I think five or six are men. Wow. So, right. That's the, the, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 the power of, of, women lead, of women leaders. Um, yeah, and so, again, I think it's taking a step back and trying to understand that there are, there are other ways to be successful and there are yeah. other definitions of success. And the things that are successful in our communities aren't necessarily what you might see in others. Yeah. And part of that is I think about my, my dad used to always say very directly, Indians just wanna be Indians, right? <laughs> in other words, there's all this work around um, inclusion, right? And trying to give everybody the same opportunities, which is true, but we also want to continue to be who we are as indigenous peoples and not assimilate mm -hmm. fully into larger society. We want to continue our culture, our traditions, hold our land, right? Hold our communities. And that is back. something that is often foreign to us here yeah. in the United States because we always think about, oh, everybody wants equity and that means that everybody's the same but that's not what it means. Yeah, right? and, and giving back too. You had mentioned one yes. of the, the amazing stories of a, of a ACES yes. a member, you know, had gone back to her community and invested her time and her talents yes. in her community. And that just the ROI on that alone is exactly. just incredible. And that's something that you'll see in a lot of, in, this, in the information that we're putting out, what, what we're learning is that most of the indigenous peoples that come through ACES and go on into their careers, definitely have a commitment to somehow also be giving back into their communities whatever that is, whether it's through, you know, volunteer and, you know, not necessarily through work or going back to work in their communities. But that is almost always um, part of their drive to um, be successful is so that somehow they can help their communities. Yeah, uh, yeah absolutely. Central. Um, before we get into the audience Q&A, I kind of wanted a, a really quick question on, um, you know, the ACES conference, the national conference. Mm -hmm. um, I've been to a few of them. If anyone's ever been to one of these, uh, and we have a couple of LENAC tables yes. here. It's just, you're surrounded by just brilliant minded people. And uh, I think you had 1,700 at the, the last one? 2,800. 2,800, yeah. oh my, yeah. <laughs> 2,800. I think I might've said that last night that I was thinking about that. I'm like, no, I no, totally that's Yeah, that I know out. you had, a, it was one of the largest attended. And that's, it was. It was, that's incredible yeah. and just shows you the, the, the need and the pertinent um, you know, need for that work. Um, for those who are interested in going to ACES, mm -hmm. and I'm particularly, I'm framing this as non-natives, right? Because mm -hmm. you have a whole career fair, mm -hmm. right, at ACES. Yes. Um, if they want to go to ACES, what ways should they prepare as they attend? So, you know, you're, you're looking, you're in your DEI office or you're in an HR office or want to learn more. What's the best way that they can attend an ACES conference? Well, definitely be connected with with us directly and there's ways to do that through our website it's pretty pretty obvious um, <laughs> how to get connected because we want more people at the conference and to say um, just to add we have the largest college and career fair in what we call Indian country right so if you're looking to recruit um, native students for your universities and colleges and or to come to work ACES is probably the place to go um, because we definitely we have about 250 exhibitors that come and exhibit to recruit, and about 100, about, I'm sorry, about half of those are colleges and universities, the other half are employers. To prepare, yes, connect with ACES. We have something called the Corporate Advisory Council. We have a um, Government Relations Council. So we have places that you can plug in with your peers where we actually have meetings and we talk, um, we have meetings and we have discussions and kind of like trainings 
to prepare companies, um, government agencies, we have one for universities and colleges, um, to understand ACEs and to understand our community and our people a little better so that you can get prepared. But certainly, um, reach out, connect with us, um, sponsor the conference would be great. <laughs> um, but also, if you're just interested, the other thing is ACES is open to everybody. It is open to everybody. You don't have to be indigenous. You don't have to be there to recruit. You can be, we have membership, you can be an associate member, which really isn't all that much different than a general member in terms of what you get. Just if you're somebody who's interested in supporting what we're doing. We want, we need, we need everybody, right? Yeah. We need support. And so you will have, I will talk to people who are non-Indigenous who come to the conference and they are blown away. They're like, I have been to conferences, all these different conferences, I've never been to a conference like this. Because of the integration of the tradition and the culture that flows throughout the conference, the feeling of family, we call ourselves the ACEs family and that all are welcome. People are like, I feel so included. I feel so welcome here. This is amazing. So it's something that you really have to experience, but definitely um, check out the website. Uh, there's contact information. We'd happy to have a call with you and talk with you about it. That's generally, I spend a lot of time doing that as well. Mm -hmm. And so do, so do my colleagues. So yeah, we'd love to have you. Absolutely. All right, uh, everyone, Sarah Echohawk. And we are about to begin the audience Q&A. I'm Cynthia Connolly, Director of Programming here at the City Club. And I'm joined by Sarah Echohawk, CEO at the American Indian Science and Engineering Society, the leading national nonprofit organization representing Native American students and professionals in STEM fields. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those joining via our live stream at cityclub.org or our radio broadcast at 89.7 IdeaStream Public Media. If you'd like to tweet a question for our speaker, please tweet it at the City Club, and you can also text it to 330-541-5794. That's 330-541-5794, and City Club staff will try to work it into the program. Do we have our first question ready? Thank you very much. Um, I remember in reading Braiding Sweetgrass, Robin Walls described the disconnect when she was a student mm -hmm. in STEM, in her field. Um, so I'm wondering if there's a focus in ACES on changing or bringing um, the first science scientists wisdom and experience to what's been a very destructive Western mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, technology and science on its impact on the earth. Yes. So the, the answer is absolutely. Um, within ACEs, certainly, we try to highlight that and support um, both students and professionals who are doing that. And also, um, as I mentioned, like in the PK through 12 space, we actually are creating culturally informed curriculum. Um, for example, for a chemistry lesson, I can, I, this just off the top of my head, I remember that um, one of the, <coughs> the chemistry curriculum included um, brain tanning of buffalo hide and the chemistry process through, you know, behind that. So there's different things that we're doing from a curriculum standpoint to try to make sure that we're integrating um, culture into the curriculum that we're helping to design um, for uh, students in that space. When you get into <laughs> beyond that, and that's, even, that's not always even welcome or accepted, that's, that takes a little bit of, of finagling, um, and of course it's few and far between. Um, 
so a lot of what we have to do is outside of the schools, right? And so we have to do that in order to bring that. In, the, in colleges and universities, it's still a, very much an uphill battle unless you're in the tribal colleges where they do actually have courses that offer, um, that offer stuff that, you know, that is based in tradition and culture. I, I think of this example of Sonia Ibarra, uh, Dr. Sonia Ibarra, who was one of our professional of the award winner, professional mm -hmm. of the year award winners last year. And she had a very difficult time because she wanted to um, combine Western science with indigenous science in Alaska in the work that she was doing up there that had to do with sea otters and, and shellfish and the ocean and really the effects of um, the otter population on the shellfish. But she was trying to get, you know, to uh, push for her dissertation and essentially was running into roadblocks because nobody was willing to support her in including the indigenous science in that. Um, she was finally able to get that done, but it was a continual battle for her to even do that. And the thing is, is there's nobody, like where, where does she go, right? And who does, you know, and like there's nobody there. So of course, yes, at ACES we're trying to support that and we're trying to highlight that and we're trying to push for that. But it is, it is still an uphill battle because often it is seen that indigenous science is not legitimate, right? And I think as we continue to move forward, we're going to see that in fact it is. Mm -hmm. Because you look at the, the challenges that we're facing, um, particularly around climate change, and that a lot of the um, indigenous knowledge that we have could actually be the knowledge that could help us solve those problems. So I know I didn't really answer that. The, the, the answer is yes, and we have sessions definitely at the ACES conference that focus specifically on that and presenters. And Robin um, Walkimmer uh, has presented at ACES and we know her well. Um, but it's, it's, it's definitely a slow and ongoing challenge. Um, we need more support. And often when we ask for funding around those kinds of programming, um, we're, not always, we're not generally successful, but I think I'm hoping that things are changing, mm. hoping you know, that we're getting more traction. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, listening to your presentation, I was stunned. It seems like there are definite parallels between what you have experienced as a Native American and what immigrants and refugees mm -hmm. often experience coming to this country yeah. in terms of wanting to be inclusive but holding on to their roots yes. and having to make it in a totally new environment. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? I would, I would completely agree. Um, I think that's very similar, and that you know that the message is then if you're going to be successful and you're going to be anything of value, then you have to conform. And I think that's not you know I think that's absolutely false. <laughs> Obviously, as an indigenous person, I mean certainly we can learn from each other, and I'm not saying that we want to be isolated in our communities, but you know there is value in diversity of thinking, right? And that's I mean then that's I mean that you can see that in the bottom line um, with mm -hmm. companies who have actually taken that seriously. Um, so yeah, I think that's very, I think that's very true. I also, um, you know, it's interesting as, in, as indigenous peoples, um, this, you know, the issue with, with immigration that, you know, and the, the, the arguments around immigration because, you know, we've always been welcoming or tried to be welcoming people and, you know, you will see that the majority of indigenous communities are supportive of people coming in, even though all of these things have happened to us, right? Because we do want to have community with people who aren't necessarily like us. Like I was just saying, you, we, everybody is welcome, right? And mm -hmm. so anyway, I just, I think there's, there's somewhat of an affinity there. 
Yeah. But yeah. Absolutely. Good observation. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for being here. So it's a, as a queer male, I know when I go into a client or an employment situation, I know how to look for safe, welcoming, and celebrating environments. If I were an indigenous person, what would I look for? For a safe, welcoming environment? And, and I just want to, before I do that, just thank you for speaking out. And um, I'm the, the mother of a trans son, so I'm very much a, an ally for the LGBTQ community. So thank you for being brave. Um, yeah, this is, this is difficult. So, um, and we get asked this all the time, and I said this is the work we're going to be doing. But definitely um, for indigenous people, one is are there other indigenous people there? And if not, can my employer, my university, create a space for that and help me get connected to whatever that indigenous community is? So it, as we were talking, Cleveland was a um, relocation, relocation city. city where a lot of native people were brought in the 50s and 60s as part of that federal program coming from different tribes. So while there aren't tribal nations, there are tribal people here. And so knowing where that community is and then connecting people to that community is absolutely essential, whether it's a university or it's a workplace. Um, the other thing is uh, giving, so this is what we tell employers all the time, giving your native employees, indigenous employees, the opportunity to go to conferences and other events that are for indigenous peoples where they can make that connection. Of course, ACEs, right, of course, but there are others, right? So that they feel like they at least have that outlet where they can make that connection and the employers and universities and colleges should be supportive of that, right? Instead of like, oh, well that's vacation time and that's this and that, right? Mm -hmm. You're gonna have a more um, productive employee, a happy employee, same with students, if they're allowed those opportunities. Often I see the creation of these employer uh, employee resource groups, ERGs, right, within these companies and government agencies, and uh, Native people will create one, and then it's like, it's up to you, right? So you've got your job and your family and all this, and then you have to create this group, you have to figure out how to staff it, schedule it, it all has to be on your volunteer time, and then if you wanna go to an ACES conference or something, then you have to raise the money, you have to figure out how to get there. Obviously, that doesn't work very well. Um, it really, and if you look at, there are companies who have done this, there needs to be support, financial um, support and support from the leadership for that group. Um, and that would be true on campuses as well. I think students are getting um, burned out. Um, they've got so much going on and ACES was always like a student club, right? And yeah. it still is. And students have a hard time um, making time for that and finding time to fundraise and to do all that to get to the events that they want to be at. So one of the things at ACES, of course, is that we try to, to provide some travel support where we can. But you definitely want to see somebody, um, what is safe? Safe is where it's acknowledged like, hey, welcome, you're indigenous, you're in the LGBT community, you're black, you're Hispanic, like, we welcome you, here's some people that we want to connect you with, we, we're going to connect you with a mentor who is also from your community, that's important, right? Right, yeah. We're gonna connect you with the community that is here because you probably moved from somewhere. So, I have more, but I'll, <laughs> I'll let, go to the next question. Thank you both for this amazing program. Um, my question is, um, is ACES taking a collective stance on our indigenous voices as far as climate change goes? So the answer is yes, there's a voice in ACES um, 
and I get this I get this question a lot. So the mission of ACES, right, is to increase the number of indigenous people in STEM fields or STEM studies and careers, right? So at ACES, we recognize that's and as I mentioned, even other fields. So it's very broad. I mean, I'm going to answer your question, but I have to kind of lay the groundwork <laughs> here. So we have indigenous peoples in all kinds of majors and careers, including oil and gas development. And we have tribes that are in oil and gas development. Because say what I think personally, right? Okay, so what ACES has, has decided and has done, because it's not a political organization, right? It's, this is the mission, is that like when Standing Rock happened, ACES came out and said, we support tribal sovereignty, right? We support our tribal governments. And so if the Standing Rock Nation says, this pipeline is bad for our community and we don't want it, we support you in that. It gets a little bit tougher because yes, there are tribes who engage in mining and oil gas development. That's their, right, their sovereign nation. So we support their, that exercise in their tribal sovereignty. But we also within the board and I think of the makeup of ACEs, we see climate change is something as, we think that is the, the, right, the biggest issue facing our world today. And so what we do then is in our programming and the sessions and the work that we do and the kind of like scholarships and programming that we create, that's where we try to make the change. But we're not a political organization that we come out and we make a statement against a particular company um, or a particular tribe who's engaged in you know, oil and gas development or any of that. So I would say that within the organization, there is definitely a collective belief that climate change is the biggest, is, the, is our largest issue. And that, as I mentioned, is indigenous people have the solution. So how can we support ACEs, like through ACEs, how can we support and drive people in that, including all of the external people that come to the conference and engage in ACEs and get to see what indigenous people are doing in terms of working on those problems and those issues. So I hope that answers the question. And I will say the opening panel at the national conference is going to be about climate change. Mm -hmm. So, Great. yes. Hello. Hello, I have two questions. Uh, the first one is, how many people in this country are indigenous or identify as, as indigenous? And second, you mentioned like going to conferences where you're the only native on the panel. And so my question is, are there any, could you mention one or two specific issues or problems that you think native people have uh, that should be addressed in order to increase diversity in education and employment. Thank you. That second one, I'm going to have a little hard time. With. The first <laughs> one. I think, the, I think we're like 4% of the nation. Oh, now, yeah. The latest well, it, census. Right. I yeah. think it's actually around about 3%. Three? Yeah. But there's a larger debate, you know, and, and, or debate, discussion about who is native. Um, so it really kind of depends on how you define who is indigenous. You're talking about people who are members of federally recognized tribes or if you're including state recognized tribes if you're including people who are not enrolled in any particular tribe but you know um, know that they are indigenous um, native hawaiians aren't considered federally right, recognized right. but yeah, yeah. It, gets, it gets so sticky. the census number is about three percent so that's roughly the number but it, it's it's a hard definition to and about a hundred thousand in ohio right. And if you think about it, I mean, all of that was the process, the forced assimilation of our people, right? We were supposed to <laughs> kind of assimilate and intermarry and, uh, out, of, 
out of existence. And the second question was... Often you have to create that yes, space yes. Um, to have Native voices heard. So maybe how can um, people who host these conferences, these events, be more inclusive of having that Native voice there already so when we come, right. we can you know, right. take well, care of business. Well, definitely to have the discussion with, you know, with who you're going to be you know, who's gonna be there, like you and I had conversations about this, but yeah, because it shouldn't, uh, yeah, and it also can't just be one person representing all, <laughs> right, all of Native people. And also to, to, to find out and to do some work on your own in terms of educating yourself about what is, you know, what is out there? What is the status of tribal nations? What is the history of tribal nations here? Where are we today in terms of contemporary um, Native people, you know? Um, I think as Cynthia pointed out, often we get kind of, and this happens in our jobs and in our institutions, it's like if you do say you're native, then all of a sudden like then more work is put upon you to have to do all of that, right? Mm -hmm. So yes, to be bringing in more than just one native person would also be helpful in thinking about, um, thinking about that. Absolutely. Josh? Um. You know, as as indigenous peoples, how do we square in our minds and in our actions this the the fact that Western science and scientists have used STEM to dehumanize mm -hmm. and subjugate native uh, indigenous peoples and steal our land mm -hmm. and destroy sacred sites in the name of science, whether it's archaeology, whether it's putting telescopes on sacred lands in Hawaii, et cetera. So how do we square that history with wanting to be pro-science and use these fields to mm -hmm. save the planet and humanity? If I had the answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it's, what's important is that you said it, right? And, I, and this is a conversation that we have all the time. And I, and I think back to like, and, and I'll talk a little bit about your question, but I think back to like my dad who founded the Native American Rights Fund, right, which is like the NAACP for indigenous peoples here in the US. And you know, essentially what, what that strategy was, like all of these laws, the legislation and the acts and the things that the, on the legal and policy side that were created to essentially annihilate Indians, right? We're now gonna use those as tools to fight, you know, to, to basically turn that around and enforce our rights, right? So when I think about Western science and I think about indigenous science, I think similarly, I think we're, we're getting to that point, we're at the precipice now that it's like this Western model is not working out so great for us, right? <laughs> and so it is ripe and it is the time for indigenous peoples to be stepping forward and for us to be putting a light on them and saying, here's some, you know, we can look at Western science, but let's look at indigenous science Right, and like we're talking about Robin Wall Kimmerer, right? Like how can we braid those, if you will, together, right, into the kinds of solutions that we need? And I know that's oversimplified, but that's the way I see it, right? It's like we have to build on the knowledge and the tools that were used against us and figure out how to indigenize them, mm. right? And it's not just to benefit us, it's to benefit everybody. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. Next question. Hello, and thank you for um, this wonderful talk and sharing all of your knowledge with us today. Um, Cleveland has a lot of really fantastic um, science institutions, not just academically, but also public institutions like gardens and parks and science centers. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to maybe some of 
the benefits for a public institution like a museum of um, highlighting traditional ecological knowledge and some of and like indigenizing some of the topics mm -hmm. at their sites and how that can benefit you know not just the native community and seeing representation but mm -hmm. also like just everyone um, right. in general and how to use that to kind of push for greater representation with the higher up leadership within those institutions. That is a great idea. <laughs> I agree. Well, and I think about like, um, I think that's in Illinois, right? The Dickinson Mounds. I don't know if everybody's familiar with that, but it was like a burial site, burial mounds that they, for years, um, basically turned into a museum attraction. I don't say it's a museum. That's why I said attraction, right? Um, where they were essentially displaying the skeletal remains of our ancestors, right? And people were paying for that. And it's like, go see that, and then you know you go get a hot dog and a drink, and I'm just like, it's just crazy. But, um, and we have had huge challenges with museums as indigenous peoples, right? So there's the, I don't know if people have heard of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation mm -hmm. Act, NAGPRA, NAGPRA right? Mm -hmm. To try to get, um, you know, not only human remains back to the people um, so that for reburial, but also all the funerary objects and things that were stolen as part of that process. So, okay, so back to your question. So I think that historically, and not all, but that a lot of museums, that was kind of the way they viewed indigenous peoples, again, like in the past and somebody to study. And I think you're right, then that kind of fed into this mindset, right, of Indians are in the past, and yes, we can study their skeletal remains, they're here to study, and it's like, that's my great-great-grandma, I'd really prefer <laughs> that not happen. So I think, yes, there's a tremendous opportunity to kind of shift the way that museums are interacting with Native people, um, and certainly a lot of that has happened through NAGPRA, though sometimes we, get, we still get resistance, um, and to be telling those stories, right? Because people of school, you know, children are coming in, people are coming in, and that's the story that they need to be seeing, and that's what they need to hear. And I think also in that, if possible, to also address why the way that it had been done historically was wrong. Yeah. And this is really what we need to learn, and this is what we can learn from indigenous people that are here today, <laughs> right? Right here today. Absolutely. So, yes. Yes, I think we're at, we can do one more question. All right, we'll do one more question. So my question was, uh, if indigenous science gets recognized, what would be your next step? What would our be next step? We got all the indigenous people in STEM fields that we want. What's next? Well, I think you said World domination? science <laughs> recognized. <laughs> do you mean traditional, like indigenous science? Yeah. Well, I think the next step would be a better world because, right? And I, and I, you know, I say that, but it's, it's true. I mean, I, and I think about, and I, it's because if you think about the process of industrialization, like the industrial revolution and how that shifted so much and the building of the cities and all of these things that happened and indigenous people kind of saying, yeah, we're not, we don't really want to be part of that. And now it's kind of coming full circle. Um, I think we would, I mean, I'm being honest, like we would be a better place. Like there is real opportunity here to, to address some of the biggest problems that are facing us, right? I mean, the Hopi can grow corn in the desert. They did that for <laughs> time immemorial, right? With no water, like how did they do that? And it didn't require water, a lot of water. Like how did they do that? There are lessons there that can benefit all of us. So I would see a better world, yeah. yeah. Amazing note to end on. Sarah Echohawk, everybody. Miigwech. Thank you. Thank you.
Today's forum is part of our Diversity Thought Leadership Series with support from KeyBank. It is also the Nathu Agarwal and Roy Blackburn Forum, established in memory of Mr. Agarwal and Mr. Blackburn, who set inspiring examples and exhibited a lifelong commitment to education, in particular women's and girls' education. We are grateful for the support of City Club member Raj Agarwal and his family who have made this annual forum possible. Thank you. We would also like to welcome guests at the tables hosted by the Great Lakes Science Center, Key Bank, the Lake Erie Native American Council, MC Squared STEM High School, the NASA Glen Research Center, and the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Thank you all for being here today. Next Friday at the City Club, we'll be joined by Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb and Connie Hill Johnson, Chairperson of the Cleveland Foundation, for a forum in partnership with the Soul of Philanthropy. And just announced the City Club will host Ohio Chamber of Commerce CEO Steve Stivers on Friday, February 24th, to talk about the blueprint for Ohio's economic future. And then Congressman Dave Joyce will join us on Friday, March 3rd. You can learn more about these forums and others at cityclub.org. And that brings us to the end of today's forum. Thank you once again to Sarah Echohawk. And thank you, members and friends of the City Club. I'm Cynthia Connolly, and this forum is now adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream Public Media are made possible by PNC and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.